one of our friends told me I was very brave to admit my naivety on a podcast. And then have it as the title of the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> At which point I'm like, really? I didn't think I don't like think that. so. Now you mention it. Oh, I sound like an idiot. You're right. I'm very brave to sound like an idiot. I don't think that's true. Which friend was that? Philip. Ah. Clearly, he's not your real friend. Philip taught me how to do it. Like, everything I know is just because yeah. from what Philip told me, yeah. pretty much. I think um, he's he's listening with the perspective of someone who's like a unit testing veteran and thinking these people admitting that they're like new to unit testing is like admitting you're a beginner developer. Yeah, whatever. I'm happy to admit the real <laughs> I truth. I don't really care. Exactly. Well, here's the I? thing, right? I, I have consistently said that being on this podcast doesn't make me suddenly some sort of programming genius. Exactly. I, I'm not I like, am what I am. I am coming to this with the knowledge that I have and any you know knowledge that I don't have, I freely admit, hmm. because I don't think the podcast is necessarily about us saying you know this is the way that you do it, and I no. think this is the intellectual uh, you know <laughs> way that you should approach this Hang problem. On. I gotta take a picture of your intellectual face. <laughs> My intellectual face is kind of scowly. <laughs> yeah, um, I you know I, I I don't come to it with that. I come to it with the fact that I don't necessarily know everything. I'm going to say the things that I think, and if they're wrong, I'm perfectly happy to be you know told so. All right, well maybe I should do the intro. And we'll kick it off like they do in football. Is, mm. that, is that something that they do in football? Yes. Kick off? Not the football I follow. Oh. They still kick, though. I think in every football, there is a kick at some point. But not a kick off. Jelly just said kick. The, the phrase. I did Let's, I did let's say kick, kick this off. thing off. Damn it. Yeah. Kick off. Okay. It's like where you begin yeah. proceedings with a kick. And there are certain games of football where you do begin proceedings with a kick. It's true. But there are other versions of football where you begin proceedings with a bounce. Uh, Australian. If if the if my desk didn't have the back on it, I'd kick this off with, by kicking oh, you in the leg. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. That's just like that. Hi and welcome to Mobile Couch. This is a show where we talk about mobile development for mobiles that we develop for and watches and watches, which is also a mobile. Yes, because it's a mobile device. A wearable. It is device. a wearable. A mobile wearable. Do you remember? Device. Do you remember? Like, I remember reading magazines that, as a kid where they would like they would show off like the the latest in wearable technology, and it would be like this you know suitcase thing that they'd wear on their back, and yes, have like some crazy ass like helmet with like goggles and yeah, crazy. I went to a uni um, where there was a lab that focused on wearable computing, and I kind of looked up to these university students because they were a few years ahead of me and yep. doing really, really cool stuff. And they'd walk around campus wearing backpacks, lugging basically a desktop computer in a backpack. Crazy. With um, a massive battery pack and then goggles. But they were doing uh, augmented reality stuff. So, mm. you know, like cameras. Which you now do with like, you know, yeah, with your a- mobile devices. Yep. Mm. This is episode number 56, I think. Now I actually am really unsure about that. Open up the web website, mobile, couch, load, load, load. 56. 56. Definitely 56. And it's hosted by Jake McMullen. Good evening. And Ben Trengrove. Good morning, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. You, you tell us. Is it? Well, it is. It's 11.38 in the morning. And yeah. myself, Jelly, a.k.a. Daniel Farrelly, who, if I don't interrupt and just you know say who I am, people won't ever find out because we'll just get sucked away into other conversations like for instance the follow-up that we have and we do have some follow-up mm. this see week. what i did there that was a segue that was a great segue yeah, it was fantastic and did you notice that i also didn't say speaking of follow-up <laughs> until just then <laughs> until just yeah, then. you ruined the magic it was flowing oh mm. dang but speaking of follow-up we have some <laughs> good i'm glad would you like to read it Okay, so we got some uh, some follow-up from Catherine Wise, who uh, sent us an email to say, I used to be a lot like Jelly, hello, about how I write unit tests. I never unless someone else makes me, until I started dealing with encryption and deserializing binary data. I still don't use unit tests everywhere, but now I know why I need them. When I'm coming to a part of the code where I wouldn't couldn't write it down, uh, what the output should look like. That's when I need a unit test. And unit testing, she says, can also be useful in situations where the build run try cycle, not like try cycle as in three wheels, but build dash run dash try cycle yep. takes a long time. I have worked with some software that takes eight plus hours to run before it got to my code. Unit test time. 
I completely agree. Yeah. I think those are both fantastic examples of where unit tests are useful. So the run test tricycle, I think, is what got me interested in writing them most recently. Because as I said, I was working on a Swift framework that I couldn't easily load from a playground. So playground. I've been, I've been getting into mentioned. playgrounds a lot lately yep. as a way of shortening that run test tricycle. So unit tests, I completely agree with Kathy, are good ways of shortening that to be able to set artificially sort of set up the exact scenario that you want to test out yeah without having to kind of do all the work to get your app into that state right so you can just test like parts of it yeah so i should actually mention i have never written a unit test until last week ever like ever written a unit test and and you wrote one last week and i wrote i wrote unit tests. i went away and i wrote unit tests how did you find it did you uh, enjoy it i was a little bit confused at begin at the, to begin with because I wasn't sure exactly what I should be kind of doing with these things. So I looked up a project, just an open source project that I'd been looking at previously and had a look at their unit tests and kind of learned some very quick lessons about how they had it set up. Uh, And then essentially did much the same thing with some very basic code. So I've just been testing some stuff in static tables, which I mentioned last episode, and testing the way that the data source actually gets set up and initialized and whether or not the methods that you use to like insert stuff and remove stuff actually did what they were supposed to do. And it was all going really green pretty much, which is kind of actually really difficult because you're not sure having already written code that you're pretty sure works and then seeing that it's green on the unit test. It's not really that much better because you're kind of going, wait, is my unit test broken? Do I need to like test my unit test? So, so the theory behind, I, I don't know, I'm not an experienced unit test developer, but my understanding of the theory behind some approaches to unit testing is that um, you can write a test, a failing test first. So you write a test which fails and correctly mm. shows that your code is not doing the right thing. Then you change your code so that it does do the right thing. Yeah, but my code was already passes. doing the right, right. thing. So, so I wasn't going to go back and then break, break my code. code in order to make my unit <laughs> no, test go exactly. broken. I think that failing test works when you haven't yet written your code. Right. Or if you're doing this kind of crazy test-driven test development. Yeah. Or where you find a bug, right? So if you've got an existing code base with or without tests mm. and you someone reports a bug, mm. a way of using unit tests as a tool to ensure that once you fix the bug, it stays fixed is before you fix the bug, you go in and write a failing test that demonstrates the bug. That demonstrates what it should be doing but is failing. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So you basically take the bug report or take your understanding of what's going on and kind of formalize that as a failing unit test to say, okay, I see what's going on. When this method's called with a nil value, it just crashes. Mm. That's clearly wrong. Okay, I'm going to set up a unit test which passes nil in. Mm. Yes, it's crashing. Okay, now I'll go fix it. Cool, it's passing. So... All of mine were passing until I got to a part that I don't where they're methods that I don't really I don't really use. So I had written some methods that do um, insert a row at a particular index path and create a row at a particular index path. And when I'd built them, I clearly didn't test them properly using my patented wait until right at the end to test technique, and uh, they were they were broken. They were well and truly broken one of the methods didn't actually even use like the parameters that it was given at all. <laughs> Just didn't use them. <laughs> yeah, that sounds kind of broken. <laughs> so that was kind of broken. Uh so the but the unit test picked that up. Obviously I got to the point where I was I was like, okay, I need to test this stuff and it you know, obviously it failed and I kinda of went, Oh, well dang <laughs> <laughs> and went and fixed it and checked the fix in and yeah, all good. Cool. So I'm not quite finished my fun with unit tests and uh i'm currently you know doing it as i get time to but hopefully at some point in the not too distant future i will be a hardy unit test professional Hmm. by which i mean i will probably not write any more unit tests for another six months or so so i still struggle with knowing how much to write and like there's there's so much you can do there's so many um every method or function you're testing you can test it with a particular set of parameters Mm -hmm. and you've got a test for it but i sometimes wonder how much to test different logic flows of different ways in which that function could end up going yeah in different you know potentially error states or different conditions or even um different expected values for parameters like what if you pass it a really large number does it 
do the right thing or does it do a different thing with a very small number or yeah. give it a negative number or um so i recall um having not written but having seen other people's unit tests in the past in a previous job i was you know i i worked with some java developers and they would unit test all the code and they would write their unit tests in such a way that each unit test class was testing an actual class and each unit test method was testing a specific method on that particular class yeah, that yeah. it was reflected to. So basically, whatever your class structure was, that was the structure of their yeah. unit test code, which I guess worked works and probably means that you're going to test all the possible things. But yeah, that seems like a lot of work. It does seem like a lot of work. And like in practice, so the code base that I've been writing unit tests for recently is... Uh, client to a server-side API. Mm. And I've got some tests and they're working well and then I'm implementing the functionality to do the thing that they're meant to do and then the tests pass and it's all good. And then I'll be running it in the app that's under development and um, I'll find an edge case in the API, like a field that I was expecting to always have a value in certain circumstances would not have a value. And um, part of me thinks, okay, I should now go in and write another unit test that sets up you know, passes in some data with no value for that field and shows that uh, I wasn't parsing it correctly yeah. and then fix that and then the test would pass and I could get on. But I find it hard to maintain the discipline of doing that when I'm trying to develop features that are consuming my sort of API layer and I've found one of these edge cases. I just want to go in and quickly fix it so that I can get on with the thing that I'm working on. And that's where I'm struggling is that discipline around it feels like unit tests become a lot of code to maintain and as the complexity of your app grows, you have to go and revisit them. Like, it's not like you can just write a suite of tests and they yeah. stay written and done. It's yeah. like you've got to revisit it. And if you refactor your code or if you change things, then you've yeah. got to go in and change all your unit tests. And, yeah. I, I, I don't think, even having now written unit tests, and somewhat I can see their benefit, obviously. They found code that was Because broken. they found code with the, that was broken. So, that's always, you know, that kind of right there says, hey, there's some benefit to this. With that in mind, I will not be writing unit tests for all of my code ever. I will probably unit test most of the stuff that I release kind of to like publicly, like libraries and stuff like that. Mm. And I might test things where I think it might have a higher six, a higher chance of failure for whatever reason, API level stuff and all that sort of kind of jazz. But yeah, I'm not going to write unit tests for everything. I, I don't. I, th I think there is probably a point at which there is some sort of kind of balance. I don't think going full, f like, I don't think going full unit test guy is, is the way to go for, for me anyway. I mean, I think different approaches work for different people and different projects, different code bases. Indeed. So we got other feedback. I, the thing is, we got less feedback on unit tests than I thought we would, but we got some other feedback, but I mean, we probably should get onto other topics because yeah we've got a lot to talk about we did today. talk about unit tests like the entire last episode so yep. and there's exciting things happening in the world of ios development are you talking moment. about watches maybe oh holding your watch up i think jake's in a rush again <laughs> i'm not in a rush i just enjoy looking at the lovely pink on my watch face mm -hmm. yeah, I, I made it match my t-shirt today Mm, matches so a strong Jake word. is the only one with a watch, right? Well, he is at the moment. So, Jake, you ordered when like they first went on pre-order, right? I did, and you were one of the people that were like, "Oh my god, it's five five pm! Must must order." I did. Did you use that voice? I I, I was too busy to talk. Right, I was not going to be distracted from the task at hand. I had my laptop set up, Safari open, Chrome open, connected to Wi-Fi using the Apple.com store browser-based. Wow. my iPhone in one hand using cellular redundant networks here oh, on the App Store app. I was ready. I was ready to place my order. So anyway, which one succeeded? Uh, the App Store app? Because that's what I've heard is the yeah. go-to. Was... Yeah, App Store app on my iPhone. Way, way before order was placed before the web store was even up. Mm. So I didn't order one on the pre-order thing. No, and then, and then after the pre-order thing came out, Apple just decided to grace select developers with special ordering privileges. Yeah. So that was random. Not quite quite literally actually. Uh they sent out an email to random developers. Yeah. Quote, quote random. I cuz I'm not sure exactly how like how random is that? Like nobody knows. I'd love to know that criteria cuz it was 
you couldn't seem to work it out. And if it's a lottery, why was no. it random? Why not just every developer? Weird. Did, did Apple even say it was random, or did they? They they said it was random. Hang oh, on. did they? I have the original email. Oh, sorry, I haven't seen one because you know. Yeah, because we're not special enough. <laughs> I wasn't graced <laughs> with with a special developer edition. Let me see if I can quickly find it in my email. Special opportunity is the sub is the subject line. A special opportunity for an expedited Apple Watch order. We want to help Apple give Apple developers the opportunity to test their WatchKeep apps as soon as it is available. This opportunity is offered by random selection and quantities are limited. Okay, there mm. you go. Random. So I did register for that. So I think this is really good that Apple are thinking about the need to make sure developers have access to new devices right, as soon as practicable. Yeah. Because those developers' customers will be using the devices soon. If not now, already. Um, and wouldn't it be great if as developers we could, you know, have... Like, at the moment, the only way you can guarantee that you have access, or in the past, the only way you could guarantee you had access was just to try and make sure you line up an early order as quickly as possible. Right. But this time around, they've done a couple of things. So they're running those watch labs. Yep. So they, so all, they were also sent out to random developers, I believe. Because at least a few developers that I know about didn't receive an invitation to that. So for people who don't know and didn't receive an email, they had watch labs in the lead up to. So after the special launch event. event, they had several weeks. I think two, two or three weeks of uh, watch labs where you could register and go and you know sit with a an actual watch for a day and um, basically test whatever app you had been developing. Um, I believe the requirement was that you had an app already. You couldn't just walk in there and start developing right there and then. You had to have one kind of prepped. But you could go in, you could test it on an actual device, and then you could, you know, you would be ready to launch. And so I think they ran it right up until the 24th. And that's the first, this is the first time I've heard of where there's been any sort of widespread availability of pre-release devices. Mm. So certainly every time there's a new... Well, it never happened for the iPad, and it didn't happen for the iPhone. Right. So when there's a new iPhone... Um, like, for example, when Metal was announced, I think select developers, you know, the big yeah. like, ID, yep, big come, come to Apple headquarters in Cupertino yeah. and spend a couple of weeks uh, in our labs and, and so we've got something to demo. But it's, you know, a handful of developers, whereas yeah. this time it's been multiple locations around the world and many, many more developers have been given access, Yeah, like pre-release access to devices before the public have even seen them. Uh, and then post-public release, this opportunity for developers to to get orders in ahead of the queue, basically. Yeah. So I think this is this is good. I mean, I don't want to feel feel overly gushing and grateful towards Apple because it kind of makes sense, right? Like, mm. if you want people to develop apps for a new device, it right. really makes sense to make sure the people that develop those apps are able to test them on the devices. Like, yeah, it's not- it kind of makes sense, and it was it was difficult because a lot of developers. Uh, and I've had this conversation with several people. Like a lot of developers develop their apps completely just in the simulator, mm. but the simulator doesn't give you any sort of, uh, you know, actual testing of like you know API stuff going across across the the delay between yeah. the two devices and stuff so like I that. I think the simulator tries to simulate some Bluetooth latency, but it's not yeah. the same as no, the real. It's not ever going to be the same yeah. because there's going to be always going to be uh, you know factors that you can't really. Yeah program for i guess and i also found that there were differences in font metrics so um i had Mm. layouts that were working fine in the simulator that were fitting where the font text was fitting on screen fine and that run it on an actual device of the same dimensions as the simulated one yep um and the text would click that's weird yeah so Mm. it's the, the simulator is not the same as as the actual device i mean there are subtle differences yeah i was a bit surprised that there were layout text layout differences but yeah i mean right but i mean that's that could be just something that gets fixed in the future yeah so did you win jelly yes i did i did win because you weren't gonna buy a watch until the lottery no, thing showed up and then you were like "Ooh, special <laughs> chance sold well my reasoning for uh actually i did end up purchasing one so I have one coming probably either tomorrow or the day after. Sadly, it's not here for me to be receiving weird electric pulses on my uh, <laughs> on my wrist while recording. But I did end up ordering one. And pa- the, the reason I had was kind of two things. One, I just kind of went, was exactly that reason, was, oh, I get to jump ahead of the queue. Yes, please. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, which, let's be honest, uh, I think anybody in the same situation would have a, at least a momentary uh, 
you know thought of that. Yep. Um, the other sure. the other reasoning is something that I've talked about on topicals already, and obviously I've also talked about it a little bit online. Um, I quit my day job again. Yeah. Thank you. So, uh, I'm going back to working again for myself, but this time a bit more focus on developing things for my own, like my own products. So, things like gift wrapped. And I wanted to make sure, like, and so obviously this kind of happened mid, like after pre-order and, you know, slightly before this email arrived in my inbox. Uh, So, uh, I, that situation had, had changed and all of a sudden now there is a possibility that I might look at developing something in the future um whereas previously gift wrapped consumed my most of my waking hours after work right. where you know podcasts weren't already consuming them and uh you know so now but now i've got more time and so now i wanted to ha- take the chance to actually you know have one get a feel for how the device works you know and find find an app that i can develop for it and find something that i can put on it that's cool. Because that was kind of my thing was I wanted to, I don't think I was ever going to be developing an app for the watch without actually having had a watch for at least some period of time. Yeah. But I won't go too much more into my quitting my job because I have another episode of another podcast well, uh, all about that. Can we put a link in the show notes? We will put a link in the show notes Listen. if you haven't already listened to it, people. Listen to it. Hmm. But I love my watch. I'm glad you love your watch. Yeah, I've been seeing mixed things online. So, are you finding the lag when you raise your wrist to be okay? Yeah, it's fine. So, Jake uh, showed me his quote stocks app earlier that you've yes. mentioned previously twice oh, now. So, we're talking about different lags. The lag Ben just mentioned is, um, you know, for the watch to light up when you raise your wrist. Ah, there I is don't... a slight delay. Yeah, I, it doesn't bother me. I'm, I ha- I am not a watch wearer. I haven't worn a watch for years. So I don't expect to be able to see the time on my wrist instantaneously. The fact that I have to wait a slight pause doesn't bother me. The, the, delay, that, the delay that I was talking about, though, was uh, I think we swapped. I, I, I put on the watch and his watch and had a little bit of a play just looking at the glances. And I pulled up Jake's, quote, stocks glance. So I swiped back and forth a couple of times and missed it both times somehow. I don't. I, I was swiping yeah, so past that's, two of them. Right, that's interesting. So this, this gesture to swipe between glances is not using the standard page-based no, navigation you're that like, we expect. You're like, you, if you impart greater velocity on it, it will scroll past more than one page. Right, so that's what um, was happening. And yeah. so every time I would swipe past it, it would go, like I could see kind of a flash of what it was supposed to look like, and then I'd be on the wrong glance. And then when I eventually did actually get to the glance and have had it open, it took probably about 15, 20 seconds to actually load any yeah, of the data in. It, it took long enough that the watch decided to put itself back to sleep. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and I've had that a bit. Like, it seems inconsistent. Like, I'm, I'm looking at it now, and I swipe it off and then back on again, and it wants to update maybe. No, it's not updating. But there are times when it will do it within, like, two or three seconds, and there are times when it takes the longer than the, about the seven seconds that the watch is lit up for. Mm. So I th- I certainly think, yeah, the, the idea of being able to return data straight away from your watch kit extension does make a lot of sense. If your glance is such that there is useful data you can display, like old data, yep. then I think displaying it immediately before you kick off an asynchronous task to go get new data would make sense. Was that what was happening with the with the glance when it first loaded up? It went um, like it took so long because it went to the internet to grab the yes, data? exactly. It's mm. taking it's going to the internet, and it's actually um the API mm. that I'm interacting with is interesting, and there's um it's having to make three API calls to get Ooh. enough data for one glance, mm. uh, which clearly is suboptimal. That is very suboptimal, and these sorts of things make more of a difference on the watch than they would on the phone. And even on the phone, it's suboptimal. So it's interesting. I'm enjoying wearing the watch just for the built-in apps at the moment more than I am the third-party ones. And so I guess as a device, I'm liking it more than I thought that I would. So I bought it not knowing whether I'd be really interested in it. I mean, to be honest, of course, I always like Apple's new shiny gadgets and I'm going to be <laughs> have a level of interest in whatever they release. Mm-hmm. But I was kind of cynical about the watch, thinking... Is it actually going to be something that's useful enough that I'm going to want to wear it daily? And so far, only like three or four days in, I feel like it is. Just the built-in yeah. the built-in apps from Apple are useful enough that I'll want to wear it daily. The opportunity for third-party apps, I'm 
less, I guess, excited about because I feel like the API is just so limited. But the ones, yeah, that but are that's going to be something that's going to improve in the future. I think. And yeah, I, sure, of like, course it will. I think the current watch, like even not even considering the fact that you know there's probably going to be some sort of hardware refresh at some point in the future. Yeah, not even taking that into account, I think software-wise, there's a lot that they could improve without oh, yeah, having to touch the, the hardware. Definitely, but I so, guess as yeah. as it is, the current SDK that's available and what people are doing with it, I feel is just limited. Like so, the built-in stuff, I receive a message from someone, and I get a little haptic tap on my wrist that there's a message i raise my wrist and I, pulse. I see the short look which is just the messages icon and the name of the person that's that's messaging me and if i keep my wrist raised it transitions to the long look where i actually get to read the message yes and then if i want to reply i just tap and tap the reply tap the microphone button and say what i want to say so siri on the watch is is i'm just blown away by like i thought i don't really use siri on my phone that much uh because it's kind of annoying but on the watch, I've been using it heaps. It just seems it seems heaps better. So mm. um, I'm not quite sure what's going on there. So that's really useful. Like I have a whole interaction there where I receive a message. I'm able to read the message and respond to it on the watch seamlessly, and it's it's so easy. I you know I did this the other day. I was grocery shopping, and um, this is a common thing. I'm grocery shopping, and I get a message to say, "Oh, remember, we also need such and such." Um, and usually that means I have to. I usually miss a gazillion of them and get to the checkout and then get my phone out because I'm waiting in line and realize there are five messages that I missed and I've got to <laughs> go back and go down five more aisles. Um, this time I got it straight away and I was able to reply without getting my phone out. So that works really well. The third party equivalent of that just doesn't work. So I get like a notification from the Twitter app that uh, someone posted a tweet. Yep. Um, and in the thing will be like some link that I can't. Like, what do I do with a link to a web page on my watch? So, do you it's think useless. do you think that's something that they could actually make better in the future? Like Twitter, I mean, having a getting a link via Twitter is, I mean, it's never going to improve on the watch. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, I, I think that the problem there, there are multiple problems with third party apps. I think that Apple haven't provided third party developers with an SDK that's as nice as the one that they're using, so people are hobbled already. Right. But then I also think that Apple have thought through the sort of interactions you want to do on the watch in a way that third-party developers yeah. just haven't had the time to. What? So people have been like, oh, watch, we're going to do an app for it. Excellent. Our app will show you the stuff that our iPhone app shows you. And then it kind of just doesn't quite work. Yeah, I think, the, I think though, that that's a, that's a matter of like having the chance to actually think through. And this is why I was mm. saying before that I don't think I'm going to make, I wasn't going to make an app unless I actually had a chance to, you know, be ha- like have a watch for a while. And I mean, that's not obviously not, everybody's shtick you know whatever yeah. but i find that my uh my inspiration for stuff like that like my inspiration for gift wrapped did not come from me sitting down and thinking logically about hmm, what could i do for an iphone app it came from ah oh, i have to i want to get this gif and you know i gotta search google and i can't find mm. it oh god okay maybe it's in this oh okay now i can get it now i've got to save it to my photos and then i've got to you know, and just so my my inspiration comes from you know using the using the thing, and I think you know even if other people can manage to you know build apps without that, and I'm to be fair, a lot of developers have you know spent time making up you know uh, things that they can wear and try out and oh yeah definitely. strapping I think phones to their wrist and put stuff. a lot of thought into it and and it shows. I think there are some good watch apps out there. I just feel like the gap between the first party ones and the third party ones is significant. But they had but again, Apple had actual watches to test their actual apps on for years. And you know, and for a really long time. Uh developers have not had watches yeah, up exactly. until last Friday. Yep. And even then, like, you know, they they've been developing they've been yeah. trying to develop so they can be in the store on day one. Yeah. And like you're not gonna. You got it. Not gonna nail it on day one. And yeah. I think it comes down to the thing that David was saying when he was on the show two episodes ago. He wasn't afraid of you know getting it wrong. Yeah. And I think that's like if you're gonna be in the store on day one and have not actually used your app on an actual watch. Yeah. There's, you, there's a chance. You, there's a pretty high chance you're gonna be wrong. Yep. There was definitely a bit of a gold rush that happened. So it was good yeah. for some people who were on day one. Yeah, but I think, and I mean. That kind of comes to a thing that I I've been thinking about recently, right? With like, because I mean, gift wrap hasn't been you know number one, you know, first thing in the store for anything. I mean, it wasn't the first gift app that was out there. It wasn't. It definitely. I mean, it still doesn't have a keyboard. Keyboards came and 
kind of went. This is your way of saying it's not getting a keyboard. No, that's <laughs> not what I said at all. You said, said they've went. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't. You don't hear about them very no. often, much, very much this the, anymore. At least I don't. And no, I don't I get don't a lot know. of. I don't get a lot of people asking for them anymore. That's because they suck. Yeah, well, I mean, there's that. <laughs> I like removed all my third party keyboards. But the thing is, right? Gift wrapped hasn't been first in line for anything. But I don't think that that has really, in any kind of way, hobbled gift wrapped. Gift wrapped is doing pretty well yeah I congratulations by the way i heard you had some new growth recently yeah that was crazy i had a weird weekend it was nuts i woke up to you know many 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 hits on the website which just i nearly i nearly died like <laughs> it was really weird i was weirded <laughs> out it was weird it was just weird that's pretty cool but <laughs> more to my point like gift wrapped hasn't you know actually i don't think it's you know hobbled it any it hasn't you know kept me back you know maybe a little bit but not by enough that counts i think i think when it comes to you know you can be first in the store but i think anybody that comes in after you that has a way better implementation has you know possibly even a higher chance of success with that and so i think the thing for watch kit developers now is to kind of take their you know newly strapped on watches and uh, and try and improve their apps in all the ways that they possibly can. Yeah. Between and I'm sure know. I'm sure people. Will. I think this is just the beginning, obviously. Yeah. And we're going to start to see on the watch people like what I've loved on the iPhone is seeing how someone will come up with an innovation. They'll think of a really nice way of of implementing something or a really nice user experience for a particular task, and it will kind of catch on, and people it'll become sort of part of the collective knowledge. Yep. And I think that's going to start to happen on the watch too. People are going to like come up with clever ways of solving problems and and the gap between the third-party apps and the first-party apps will narrow. Um, right. And I think the thing that will help that is the opening up of putting actual apps on the actual watch when you're not having to be tied to the phone. Like, that's mm-hmm. going to help a lot. I don't necessarily know that every app needs to do that, but I think that it will definitely help in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I won't go on about it too much more for everyone who hasn't got theirs yet. But can I just quickly say my favorite apps is the now playing glance, which lets you play and pause your... Is that an app? I thought it was a glance. It's a glance. I, I don't know if there's an actual app. I haven't looked. Is there a media play? There's a music app, which I haven't used. No, it's just a glance, but I use it heaps. So on iOS, there's this idea of a now playing view. So on the on your lock screen, you get it, as well as in control center. There's a play pause button and volume yes. next and previous, and it will give you information about what media is currently playing on your device. Taylor Swift, giant cover art. Yeah, exactly. So the watch has the same thing, right? So if any of the apps on your phone are currently playing media and you've got a watch paired with it and you look at that glance, you'll see this information about what's playing. Sure. And from there, you can control it. And I find that's just so useful. Mm. But um, the combination of Siri, so I, I, I'm in my car and my phone's paired with my Bluetooth audio and I can just raise my wrist and say, Hey Siri, play passenger. So didn't do it. Oh, delay. Can, we're going to edit this out. We'll have one. We'll just put one of those. If this was a video <laughs> thing, we would put like one of those, you know, colourful bar things saying we're having technical difficulties. <laughs> hey Siri, this is a great demo. Mm. Hey Working Siri, so well, play passenger. It's just not going to work. <laughs> we're going to cut all of that out. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so in my car. <laughs> Raise my wrist, use Siri to start playing something, and it starts playing. And then if I need to pause it or if I need to skip or something, um, I don't have to fiddle about with my stereo or my phone. I can just, you know, use my watch to pause it and skip mm. a track. Or, that's awesome. Uh, and the Apple TV remote app is cool too. I was going to ask if they had one. That would be good. Yeah, yeah, so they do. And the thing that is so much better than the phone is um, so most apps on the watch, you launch the app, and when you finished interacting with it, you just like lower your wrist and your watch goes to sleep. And then next time you raise your wrist, it takes you to the watch, the clock, the watch app, right? So basically Mm -hmm. whenever you raise your wrist, you see the time. But there are a couple of apps that don't obey that mode of interaction. Uh, One is the exercise workout app. So if you've like started an exercise and you haven't stopped it, then um, that'll override. So even when your watch goes to sleep and you raise your wrist again, it'll go back to the exercise app Mm -hmm. so you can see Whilst you're running, you can quickly glance, you know, at the distance you've covered or the time you've been running for or your heart rate or whatever you're interested in. And the Apple TV remote app works the same way. So if you're using that app and you're watching something on your Apple TV, then um, when your watch goes to sleep and you raise your wrist again, it goes straight back to the remote app. And it's already paired with the 
Apple TV. So there's none of that whole having to find the remote app again, wait for it to launch, wait for it to connect to the Apple TV, let you then, you know, 10 seconds pass before you can tap pause. Um, It's kind of like a second away. To be fair, the watch is unlikely to be the screen that you're playing with whilst also watching television, which is something that a lot of people do with their phones. Right. That makes perfect sense. Like if your phone, although, you know what, control center, or if there was something other, some other kind of widget you could run that wasn't a today widget that you could do in notification center, like it would be nice if there was a way from your lock screen to be able to play pause a Apple TV from your phone. It would. Which still doesn't help if you were using your phone as a second screen. No, it wouldn't. But if I'm using my phone as a second screen, I'm cool with the fact that i got to switch back to the remote to pause it. If I'm not using my phone as a second screen, I'm actually just watching TV and my phone's just my remote. It's kind of a pain when I'm like, I need to pause and I'm like fumbling around with my phone for 10 seconds. But um, watch is awesome. Hmm. Anyway, that's it. I'm done. Yeah. Now that we're finished, (laughs) we've probably got time for one more topic. So can I tell you a problem I encountered this week and why Dispatch Groups is the solution? Well, let's first of all have a quick primer about what dispatch groups are. I think the problem will the problem will be the primer. Okay. Yeah, the problem's the primer. So hit me. So the problem I had and have is I'm still working on this app that is talking to an API that is interesting. Yes. And in this case I was doing a today view widget, today extension. Mm. And the API for a today extension Basically, you get a method that you need to implement when the Today extension has an opportunity to update its data. I can't remember what it is off the top of my head. It's called Begin Update, Awake, Do Something, Update Yourself. I'll put a link in the show notes. This is a very weird method name. Um, it's, it's really long. <laughs> uh, but basically, the way that the Today view works is at certain points, it asks all of the widgets to update themselves. And after you've updated your view, you then call a completion block in that method mm-hmm. with a result that either says you've got new data or no data or there was an error. Okay. If you've got new data, then the t- notification center will snapshot your view into a static image that it will then use in the display. I, and I guess that's how it works, right? It's showing information that's come from a bunch of different extensions all together in one spot. So it's obviously snapshotting them all and yep. laying them out. So basically, you get an opportunity to update yourself before you're snapshotted. And then the API basically says you've got to call this completion block when you're done to tell us if you've got new data or not. Sure. So because of that, you need to call like a block when you're done. Um, the view I was needing to populate, again, I needed to call, I think, about four different API endpoints to get the data to populate the view. So four separate async tasks. And my problem was, how do I, like, when do I call the completion block? to say that I'm either done or there's no data. I've got to kick off all four async jobs and then kind of wait for all of them to finish. And then when they've all finished, or maybe some have failed if some are allowed to fail, then I update my view and then call the completion block. So that was that's the problem, is how to kind of organize a series of asynchronous tasks that are happening in parallel mm-hmm. that then have to come back together at a point to execute some code when they all finish. Sure. And I... Again, harping back to last episode, my naive implementation was just to <laughs> kick off all the async tasks. And then I'm like, okay, my widget only updates sometimes because it depended on which one finished when and when I called this kind of completion block. And then I'm like, I'll just call the completion block in the one that I expect to take the longest. <laughs> <laughs> no, that didn't work at all. <laughs> that's, that's, a terrible, that's a terrible solution. That was never going to ter- work. So to be fair, they're not all simultaneously. Um, so some are kind of subsequent, like I've got to make one call to get some data. And in the response from that, I have the information necessary to make the subsequent call. Okay. I'm like, that one's always going to be last, right? Because it's got two in a row, whereas the others, no, it's no. always going to be last. Can't rely on that. That's stupid, Jake. Don't even think that. There are so many variables there that you are not yeah. accounting for at all. <laughs> no. So then I'm like, okay, okay. To be fair on myself, I wasn't seriously considering this. I was trying it for five minutes just to see if I could get the view to load and then I was going to fix it properly yeah. later. Uh-huh. Anyway, skip that. (laughs) (laughs) Then I'm like, okay, uh, what if I like set some variable before I kick off these tasks and in the completion block for each of the tasks, I like check the variable or like have a count of how many tasks have been completed 
and then run some code, you know, after each one completes that checks the state of the list of like, you know, pending number of requests pending when it's down to zero, then, you know, call my completion block. I've implemented things like that before. I kind of was about to do it and I thought this feels really No, that's not a good idea either. You're going to set up a race condition there. Yeah. And I I was thinking, I, I was harping back to my kind of uni days of having to learn about threading and stuff. I'm like, I think I need something called a semaphore. Is it a semaphore? I need some sort of way of locking access to this block of code so that only one thread can... Oh, this is sounding... Exactly. Crazy. Yeah, it's, it's gone crazy <laughs> on you. So the next thing I looked at was operation groups, NS operation... No, NS operation queue. Yes. Because mm-hmm. I'd previously remembered that you can have different types of queues. You can have a serial queue, which will execute the tasks one at a time, or you can have a concurrent queue, which will allow tasks to be executed in parallel. Yep. And you can create dependencies between queues. And I'm thinking, fantastic. So I'll create a serial queue that has a get data task and a process data task that have to be run serially. And the get data task will kick off a concurrent queue to do like four concurrent get data requests and then come back. Um, And I think that probably would work. But I looked through the API documentation. I looked through some example code and I found it pretty hard to wrap my head around like just um it's heavy that would be a heavy solution yeah okay i use ns operation queues i use it in GitHub actually for that sort of thing for syncing okay so my sync code basically talks with dropbox and in order to you know make it run semi fast it tries to do as many as it possibly can at a time i basically kick off a task i have a special task that I have set up called a sync task. And it basically says, okay, this with this file, you either need to delete, uh, update, push, you know, pull, whatever. And there's a bunch of different types. And then, you know, it will basically, I can pop a bunch of them into a queue and it will just go through them as it, as it can. Uh, and then I can find out when, you know, they're all complete or how many are left to do and stuff like that. And so... You can go into the like if you go into you know the drop your Dropbox thing, it'll tell you how many files are getting still getting synced across. Mm. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. and I I used simple operation queues in the past before, but not with dependencies. Yeah, well, I mean, you've got to like if you want to really do it right, you've got to set up your own kind of classes and stuff on top of it, and it's nuts. yeah. So it seemed like a lot of code. So yeah. that led me to dispatch groups. Okay, um, which is part of Grand Central. Dispatch, yep, GCD, um, and basically the way a dispatch group works conceptually, you can group asynchronous tasks and then basically set up a group that contains the concurrent tasks you want to execute, and then wait until all the tasks in that group have finished executing before continuing. Right. So this exact situation that I wanted to do, and there's kind of two APIs for it: one in which the tasks themselves are synchronous which I was not able to use, and then another one in which the tasks themselves are async. Mm-hmm. So you create a dispatch group, and then you go dispatch group begin and specify the group that's beginning. Yep. Then do your async calls. First, yep. And then in the completion block for each of them, you do dispatch group notify, I think it is, to say you should let this dispatch group know that I'm done. No, no. So it's it's dispatch group create, creates a new right. group. Then you've got dispatch group enter, which yep. puts you into the into the group inside your mm-hmm. whatever block. Oh, no, sorry. You do that outside the block. And then inside the block or the completion handler of your web service call or whatever, you have dispatch group leave, which means I'm no longer in the group. Yep. And then at the end, you can either have dispatch group wait, which will wait for all of them to finish, or dispatch group notify, which basically you give it another block to say, call this block when they're all done. Yeah, that's the one I did. The dispatch group notify one. So it's dispatch group enter, dispatch group leave. And when all of the tasks in the group have left, then the dispatch group notify codes executed. Yes. And it works. I sound really surprised. I was surprised at how simple it was. Like after all of these false starts and thinking, I'll try this, I'll try that, I'll look at NS operation queues and um, dispatch groups just seemed so simple. So why do you think you would choose to use them over NS operation queue other than the fact that like they're you know a simpler implementation, I guess. That that was my reason for choosing them was that it was I found it 
easier to read the code. It was clearer to me what was happening mm-hmm. in the code base using dispatch groups. Right. Um, there was less kind of infrastructure to set up in order to get this to happen. Yep. Queues are much better for managing long-running tasks and definitely for serial tasks because groups don't really help yep. you with serial tasks. So if you need and support que- for cancelling jobs, seeing how many jobs are left, mm. you know, all of that stuff. That's your notification queue. That's what they're called, right? Operation queue. Thank you. Operation queue. And then if you've just got like three simple API calls mm. where you just want to wait for them all to finish or get notified when the three of them finish, you know, you're never going to need to cancel them because they're all pretty short running. Like they can time out. Yeah. That's fine. Yep. Then you've got your dispatch group. Yeah. That makes sense. It's a lighter option. That's definitely not good if you have, you know, long running tasks. That need to be cancelable. And managed and checked on and... All of that sort of stuff. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, cool. Of course, the real solution is to fix the API. Yes. I should, right? Yeah. This, this is papering over a problem, right? That the today view shouldn't need to make four API calls to get the data <laughs> to populate itself. Well, yeah. But if you don't own the API, you can't really fix it. You could put an intermediary layer in, like a server-side intermediary layer that calls the API you don't own and represents it in a way that makes it more appropriate for the mobile app. I think, like, I actually think serious consideration would need to be given to that. So I feel like mobile development has kind of gone back and forth a bit. When these devices first came out, you really did need to think a lot about the network requests your app was making to make sure you were making as few as possible, that you were transmitting the data in a way that was, you know, using... Right, but mod when, deflate or whatever to compress it over here. When the these devices first came out, like the first iPhone that you could program for was the iPhone, what, 3G? Yep. Yeah. yeah. So the iPhone 3G, which was, as the name kind of specifies, it was 3G, mm. which is faster than what data used to be. Yeah, but it's pretty a lot faster than it used to be. Not as fast as it, LTE, yeah, obviously. It's way slower than LTE. Like, quite significantly slower than it, LTE. And you notice it, like, even now, if you drop back to 3G with your with your iPhone, you will notice it. Yeah, definitely. And it's not just because it takes a little bit longer, like, you know, oh, I've got a bit of lag. You notice it because your phone is all of a sudden, you know, downloading a lot of things that it doesn't necessarily need because... It doesn't matter. They may, like, you know, that people are using APIs and stuff that they don't own, so they just make use of them. Yeah, but I, I kind of feel like now with the watch, we're back to this point where it matters. And I think maybe it's always mattered and we've just been able to get away with it for a while. I really notice the difference when I'm able to work on an, a mobile app where the API is returning responses that are specific to that app's UI like presenting the data in the chunks that the app can make use of it in. Yep. So you get the data that you need for the current view and only the data you need for the current view so that you're not like, you know, it's really responsive and nice yeah. and quick. And There um, are reasons why you wouldn't though. So as an example, let's go back to Giphy, Jiffy, whatever, where I do a search. I use their API for my search stuff in Gifwrapped, right? Their search results send back quite a lot of data because there is... Uh, several different formats of the you know the each image um, there's like static ones and you know low frame rate rate ones and all sorts of uh, crazy versions of each of each actual gif um, i don't need any of really most of them i need mm. usually i usually use two of them i use a static version and a the actual you know the actual gif and the only reason i use a static version is because why would i download like several meg of a gif when i can just download a you know, quick yeah. JPEG version yeah. of it. But there's a lot of information there that comes through that I don't necessarily need for the app. I could push that through my own server and, you know, basically compress everything down to just the data that I need. But then on top of that, I've also now got the lag that the ser- having a separate server introduces because not I'm not just pushing data to the phone. I'm also sending data from the phone. So I would have to send data through the server to Giphy, who would send the data back to the server and then back through to the phone, do the compression and then Mm. send it back through the phone. So it's not ideal, but I mean, that's sort of, it's just like, I think it's, I think it's not so, not as easy as, oh, we'll just stick a server in. Like, no, no, no. no. I completely agree. I think that you, you need to think it through for each scenario, Mm. but um, there are certainly times it would make sense to have 
and I, I would say today extensions are a good example. The API is really geared around you being able to do one the, sort of atomic operation yeah, and then call their having, completion block. Having a fast and responsive yeah. you know, API. And watch glances are similar, right? Like the Bluetooth, the overhead of the watch communicating with your phone over Bluetooth t- to say, give me the data I need for this glance. And then for the phone to have to turn around and go to a server four times. <laughs> and I would also say if you do have responsibility for the server-side infrastructure, then you could reduce the load that you're going to get. Well, ideally, you, would, you, know, of- you don't necessarily need to update the API that exists already. You could just you could have stand up a separate API. Stand up a separate API that you just use for your your watch app. I, yeah. I mean, it, it would be more ideal for you to be able to pull that data for the watch as a separate, completely separate thing because sometimes you are going to need all of those other options. Yeah. And the part of the reason that all of those other options exist, especially for public APIs... Oh, for flexibility. It's for and, flexibility and yeah. because other people will need other things and you're not always going to be like... You know, it, it, it depends. And, yeah. um, you know, I, I think it's a it's a matter of you, you have to make the right call for the thing that you're yeah. doing, which I think is my battle cry, right? It's <laughs> It's like, you know, make the choice that makes the most sense for your situation. Yes, that sounds great. <laughs> I'd actually be interested to hear, hear from our listeners on this one too. Is to what extent do you think that um a, all APIs should just basically be a kind of RESTful API on top of the underlying data model? And if if your app is presenting data in a way that is coming from multiple entities, that you just make multiple calls, or to or the other alternatives, if you've got a kind of API that's created specifically to feed your app the way that it wants the data. Like where on that spectrum do you do you think makes sense? What do you normally do? Indeed. So if you would like to read about any of the things that we have mentioned, including Jake's watch and also Jake's watch and Jake's watch. Have I mentioned how lovely it is? Oh, he's looking at it again, people. He really, really <laughs> wants me to wrap up. You can jump onto our website and read our show notes. They are the most interesting show notes in all of that page of the internet. They are at mobilecouch.co forward slash 56 because this is the 56th episode. And uh, if you feel particularly strongly about any of the things that we've mentioned uh, or any of those show notes, you can send us an email. Yes, you can. You can, like yes. Catherine did. Yeah. So you can send us an email at hello at mobilecouch.co uh, or you can jump on the website. That's mobilecouch.co forward slash contact. If you'd like to talk to us individually, you can do that as well. Jake is on Twitter. I am right now, even. Oh, just tweeting. Yeah, J McMullen. That's J M A C M U L L I N. And Ben is also on Twitter. Probably not right now. He's not as rude as. No, Jake. not right now. Not right now. Do, yeah. Do you know what Ben's doing right now? I'll give you one guess. Thinking about coffee. Close. I think so. <laughs> no, no. I've I haven't played that game. Actually, I think I might have played one game this morning, but you know, I'm winning by so far. There's no need to play. Can I finish wrapping up? Can you stop playing the game, please? Thank you. <laughs> and Ben is on Twitter as Ben Trengrove. That's B E N T R E N G R O V E. And I am Jelly Bean Soup. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you for listening to Jake talk about Apple Watch. Did you all know he got an Apple Watch? We look forward to talking to you again in two more weeks' time. We will see you then. Probably not see you. Talk to you then. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.